This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. We're good. Hello. Welcome. Hey. Um, should we, we'll do a little change on screen here. All right. Well, welcome uh, to whomever it is that's watching. This was welcome to everyone who's here. Uh, if you are here to see a lecture about the Apostle Paul, a Friedrich of women, uh, that lecture has been postponed. And if that, if that joke makes no sense to you whatsoever, still welcome. Uh, probably for the best. Uh, this is a newer thing for us. Wait, wait. Uh-oh. It sounds really hard. It's hard. Harsh. Harsh. My tone of voice? <laughs> is this a hike or a yike? Oh, right now it's definitely a yike. Yeah, yeah. Still. Too loud, then maybe it sounds like it's distorting. Give us one minute. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe write in if there's anyone watching um, to write in and tell us one thing or another about the sound. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that a recording of what we're doing? I think so. Yeah. 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 So sorry, guys. I'm nervous to keep inflicting this on people. No, the other one wasn't working. It feels good. It feels good. Thank you for sticking with us. You haven't. We haven't lost you uh, in the last few moments. This is uh, a new thing for us, and there tends to be uh, this pattern that things work around four o'clock, and then around seven thirty. Something has happened, though no one that we see touches it, so who knows. But anyway, welcome, welcome to Labrie on this unusual Friday of Fridays. Um, we're thankful that you're either tuning in, or maybe you're watching this later on Facebook, or again, that you're here in person. So whomever it is, for whatever reason, welcome. We're going to go ahead and jump into this lecture, this discussion on the Apostle Paul, a friend of women. And I want to begin this lecture of Paul as a friend to women by thinking about graveyards. Perhaps for some of you, reading the Apostle Paul feels like visiting a graveyard. It's something that you do rarely. It's a little eerie, uh, very lifeless, irrelevant. Uh, Paul maybe just feels like crumbly headstones and wilty flowers. This is, of course, not an ideal way to engage with the Apostle Paul, or be engaged by the Apostle Paul. Comparing anything to time in a graveyard usually doesn't have positive connotations. But there's something about an attentive walk through a graveyard in daylight with trusted friends, no spooky clouds or anything like that, 
that offers something of an image of what I'm after this evening, our time together. I want to enter into the larger, highly fraught discussion of Paul and women by doing something of a graveyard reading of his letters. Graveyards are no doubt spooky places, uh, though I hear some people like graveyards, um, maybe some people in this room, or a particular person in this room. Uh, And they can be spooky, but apart from that, they can also be a window into the composition of communities from the past. If you walk through a graveyard and you start seeing lots of names like O'Shanahan or McGillicuddy or O'Donovan or McShaney, it's reasonable to assume that there was once a sizable uh, Irish community in that place. But if you walk through another graveyard and you see a lot of Sanchez, McGill, Salamanca, Rodriguez, it's probably less likely that there was a sizable Irish community in that place. Names are important. And Paul names a lot of people in his letters. And the way we've been sort of trained to read Paul, we often just overlook the fact that he names a ton of people in his letters, 18 of which are women. And in a manner similar to what we see on tombstones, there's usually a thing or two said about each woman that gives us an idea of their significance in their life, what they did, what they were known for. And so I think attending to these names, as well as the words that Paul says about these individuals, gives us a window into what life was like on the ground in his communities. Uh, And what I'm after in particular with our graveyard walk through Paul's letters is to attend to the women that Paul named, 18 of them. And... I want us to see that Paul was a friend of women. And I don't mean this title, a friend of women, in sort of the generalized sense of of women, the way maybe a politician would say, I'm a friend of the Hispanic community, or I'm a friend of the black community. I, I mean it more in the sense of the way that, like, I would say, I am a friend to Ellie, or I am a friend to Marty, or the way the Apostle Paul himself spoke about Persis, his dear friend Persis. We know next to nothing about Persis, other than she's a member of one of the churches in Rome, and Paul sends her special greetings in Romans 16. The name Persis, which means Persian woman, was a common name in the Roman Empire that was given to freed slaves. So historians think, though they don't know, the scholars think that it's highly probable that Persis was a freed slave who was now a member of one of the communities that comprised the Roman church. But what we do know about her, whether or not she was a slave, we don't know, but what we do know is that Paul describes her as his agapetos, which is often translated as a dear friend, a beloved, the object of special affection or relationship. That he says about her that we'll see, she also worked hard. She labored in the Lord. This is a matter that I think is often overlooked uh, in Paul in general. Paul had friends. Paul had many friends. It appears that Paul had a rich social life. He's often speaking of his dear friends. This word agapetas shows up time and time again in his letters. 
Well, I don't think Paul would have maybe been the most fun guy to have at a party or be stuck in an elevator with. I think he was someone who had real, deep friendships with men and with women. And from the brief description he offers about them, I think we can discern a pattern of relationships marked by affection and intimacy that has been forged in their common work on behalf of the risen Lord Jesus. So tonight's graveyard stroll through Paul's letters, we're going to attend to some of these 18 named women. We can't adequately deal with all of them. To see not only what we can learn about them, but what we can discern about the Apostle Paul himself. For those that are interested, I am planning to do a number of talks on Paul and women. This is the first one. So if you are looking forward to and anticipating me explaining 1 Timothy 2, or 1 Corinthians 11, or 14, or Ephesians 5, or Colossians 3. If you are expecting me to approach any of those head-on, which is a little bit of a Pauline joke, he talks about what headship means. What does head mean? Uh, it's a Paul joke. It's free of charge. Um, I'm not planning to speak about those tonight. Those will come another night. I'm more than happy to answer questions about those, give some thoughts about those. But my fear is that when it comes to the discussion of Paul and women, it begins and ends only in these controversial passages. And we neglect the the truth that's all over the pages of the New Testament, all over Paul's letters, that Paul had friendships. He had relationships with women. And many of those were forged in working together for the Lord. Um, and I think when we see what Paul has to say about some of these specific women, what we can gather about this, the common image of Paul as a misogynist or someone who was committed to a patriarchal order in society, I just find that less plausible. I find it hard to believe. Paul spoke of women highly, and in his churches, women were honored and respected and contributed significantly He speaks about them in the same way that he speaks about other men as co-laborers with him in the work of the gospel. So I've already said uh, that we're going to look at some of the the named women in Paul's letters. So let's see what those are. Uh, And here is a list. Named women in Paul's letters. And this gives some of their references. So the first to show up will be Phoebe, followed by Priscilla, Mary, and, and Priscilla, I have the Romans passage, but she also shows up in other places. Priscilla's, uh, Priscilla's awesome. Uh, and then Junia, uh, we have Tryphena and Tryphosa. We have Paul's dear friend, Persis. We have Rufus's mother. We have Julia. We have Neris's sister. We have Chloe, Nympha, uh, Euodia, Syntyche. Eunice, Lois, Claudia, uh, Apphia, and that's the last one. So it's hard for me to see where where they are. But there they all are. And you'll see that a large number of them, 10 of them, show up in Romans 16. And as a way sort of just getting into tonight, and actually to get into partly where I want to go, this will make sense hopefully a little bit later, we're going to have Romans 16 read for us. But it's going to be read by my wife, Sarah. There's a significance for us to hear this in a woman's voice. So Sarah, if you can read that for us. 
This is Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila who work with me in Christ Jesus and who risked their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epeneatus who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. <clears throat> Greet Ampelitus, my beloved in the Lord, greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncretitis, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Marius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. The God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, 
greet you. Now to God, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the Gentiles, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Yeah, thank you. That was, maybe we could even stop there. Uh, Romans 16 is a rich passage and it gives us through all of these names a window into this, this community of faith that Paul was writing to. And we see that it was a diverse community. The names betray that show that there were Jews, there were Greeks, there were people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. This was a diverse group of people. And I love this. I love this passage. This has become one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament, in part because of that. And, I mean, there's a way that when you start at Romans 1, by the time you get to Romans 16, you're exhausted. (laughs) Romans 1 to 8, you think it couldn't get more complicated. Then 9 to 11 just knocks you over, and you can sort of catch your breath and understand what's going on in 12 to 15 And 16, we see all these names, and it turns into sort of genealogy mode, and we just skim over the names. But as as Sarah read it, which she read it so wonderfully, we see Paul is greeting all of these people, all of his friends who are in Rome, significant people. Now, I, I do think to think of a church in Rome is slightly misleading. Scholars believe the church was composed of multiple house churches. At least five are mentioned in Romans 16. The church doesn't have a central meeting place. The church meets in lots of homes. And homes in the ancient world weren't a reprieve from public spaces like they are today. They were themselves a mix of public and private spaces. So your living room could be filled with your children, your relatives, your slaves, your co-workers, potential Business colleagues could all be in one place in your home. And these were the places uh, where where churches would meet. And so Paul sends greetings to all these people, all these named individuals. You can think of this as him sending greetings to his friends, but he's also doing something like an ancient equivalent of networking. He's making connections with important people, with key people. Interesting. Paul, there's a high percentage of women that Paul names. For someone with this reputation for being so anti-woman, or at least an advocate of them staying out of the life of the church, Paul has special greetings for ten women here. Uh, that he names, he, 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 he names them by their names. Uh, well, and, or you could say eight, as you could see from the list. Uh, Rufus's mother and Nurse's sister aren't specifically named, but I think everyone would know who they were, including Rufus's mother and Nurse's sister uh, herself. Now, uh, a number of scholars, and one is sort of I found very helpful over this last year, Scott McKnight, 
in his book Reading Romans Backwards that starts actually with Romans 16 and then works its way. It's, it's a very different way into Romans. I found it very rich. Uh, not that I agreed with everything. Um, but McKnight believes that each named person that, that Paul mentions in some sense or another is a leader in one of these house churches. Someone with responsibility, someone with authority amongst the Christian communities in Rome. That is why Paul spends the time to name them, to greet them. These are honored and important people. And this makes sense if for no other reason than writing letters in the ancient world was very expensive. Ink was not readily available. Paul is not just shooting off an email or a text. Uh, one scholar, uh, E. Randolph Richards, who's a, kind of an expert in ancient letter writing practices, believes that for Paul to have written Romans... Uh, if you translate it into today's currency, it would have cost them over $2,000. And so this was a big expense. No ink is wasted whatsoever. And again, the names that are there uh, clue us into what is important there. And there's something that's very simple about the fact that Paul names women. It's simple to us, but it's actually quite a radical thing in Paul's day. That is that Paul just names some of these women as women without reference to a man in their life. This in and of itself is a pretty radical thing. In the ancient world, when women were spoken of, they were nearly always spoken of in relationships to the significant man in their life, either their husband or their father. But this was not the case with Phoebe, with Mary, with Tryphena, with Tryphosa, with Persis, with Julia. These are women that are just named apart from some significant man. Carol Osick, Carolyn Osick, in her book, A Woman's Place, that she wrote with another scholar named Margaret MacDonald, uh, comments that this is a countercultural thing that Paul does somewhat unconsciously throughout many of his letters. She says this is also true in sort of subsequent non-canonical Christian material, like the letters of Ignatius. You see the same thing. She says this, you see that in light of their culture's obsession with classifying women by their sexual status, it is striking that so many women are named in Pauline letters without any such designation. They're just named for who they are. And this is subtle, and this is understandably overlooked by many of us, but this simple, almost unconscious pattern and Paul's writing betrays something about what I believe the gospel has done to him. The ancient world, and in many ways our world today, has all sorts of systems of status and worth and value. And in the ancient world, women's status and value was nearly always connected to the man in her life. And so for Paul, just to write to them, just them, to name just them and not the significant man in their life, shows that Paul no longer regards those systems of worth, those systems of status. And I think that is because he has been encountered and radically changed by the risen Christ. And all those forms of worth and status, those systems, they've all been relativized in light of what Jesus has done. And you might say to yourself, does this, something so basic as this even, does it need to be named in 2020? And I want to say yes, (laughs) emphatically it does. And I'm not looking to start a fight tonight, but maybe another night. But there is 
a fairly influential Christian organization called the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I don't want to give all my thoughts on everything they say. They are influential and they, people listen to what they have to say, especially in some evangelical and Southern Baptist circles. And they define womanhood in the following way. Being a woman biblically, they say is this. It's a little wordy, so sort of stick with me here. They say womanhood, um, uh, biblical womanhood, is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationship. So even right there, it's a little wordy. It's it's not, uh, maybe it's not super clear. But here, a woman is still connected to another man in the same sort of manner that we see in the ancient world. That is just not how Paul writes. So if you want to learn more about them, I'm not, again, I'm not looking to start a fight tonight. You can look online. They have way too much free material online. Uh, but you can also look at this book called uh, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by Amy Bird. And I quite enjoy this. She's a quite conservative Presbyterian uh, woman. And uh, the, the humor in the title is the original kind of manifesto of this organization is called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So she inserted this recovering from. Uh, but that's all for another time. I said we were going to talk about named characters. Phoebe is the first one. Let's jump in. This is an icon of Phoebe. So this is what Paul says. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church of Chantria, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many and myself as well. The first thing Paul says about Phoebe, the first thing is that she is a sister. She is a follower of Christ. She is a member of this cross-cultural, multi-ethnic, new creation family of Jesus. And throughout Paul's letter, his favorite way, his most common way of describing the people of God are brothers and sisters. Scholars call this fictive kinship language. Normal Christians just call, you say, we're brothers and sisters. Um, the second thing Paul says about Phoebe is he calls her a diakonos. A diakonos. Or, as it's translated here, what uh, this is is the NRSV, a deacon. And this word gets translated in a number of different ways. Sometimes it's deacon or minister, which have clear, churchy, official kind of connotations. And sometimes it's just translated as servant. Uh, it's important that whatever we say, this term diaconus, is not identical to the same role that some denominations have today, an ordained position of being a deacon. It's not the same exact thing. It's not someone who's gone through a period of training and carries out specific duty. But that said, it's a, it's a term uh, that appears to be quite significant to Paul and to the churches that he founded. It's not a designation that he throws out lightly or haphazardly. Paul actually applies this term to Jesus in Romans. Paul applies it to himself in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So we know right away when it's translated in this verse in Romans in the, in the Living Bible, 
when diaconus is translated as dear Christian woman, we know something misleading uh, and a major misstep has taken place. Paul uses this term to describe some of his other male co-workers, like, I'm going to butcher his name, Tychicus, uh, in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, Epaphras in, in Colossians, uh, and also Timothy. And it's interesting, Craig Keener, uh, we'll come to him later, uh, quotes an older scholar who wonders why it is the translators, when they interpret diaconus for men, would always translate it as minister. But here, for Phoebe, they would translate it as servant, or as the New Living Translation does, uh, uh, as a dear Christian woman. What, whatever we know about a diaconess is part of their service, including included teaching. We see this from 1 Corinthians and Ephesians. And giant New Testament scholar, Craig Keener, in his book, Paul, Women, and Wives, and I say giant um, I mean, I'm not an expert on all that sort of stuff. He just writes a ton of books. You like measure his books by, not page numbers, but by like feet. Um, he's got a 2,000-page Acts commentary. It's, he's just a fairly prolific dude. Uh, but he says in his book, Paul, Women, and Wives, uh, that deacons, diaconus, and even in its most narrow sense, held a church office that had something to do with sound teaching and also had something to do with proven administrative abilities, the same that would be required of pastors and elders. Keener goes on to say that at the very least, when we're talking about Phoebe, she held a position of considerable responsibility, prominence, and authority in her congregation. She probably taught the scriptures as well, but if she did not, she was at least trusted with sufficient regard theologically to be placed in this prominent authority role in the church and to be recommended to those who might depend on her to help them understand Paul's letter to them. As we heard, Paul commends Phoebe to the Romans. We'll come back to that. But the third title that Paul gives Phoebe is that she is a prostasis. The idea here is that she's a patron. Uh, she is a woman of means and she invests her means in the work of others. Uh, the patronage system in the Roman world was one where individuals who were higher up the food chain uh, made gifts to those that were further down in exchange for honor or loyalty or some other larger commitment. So Phoebe appears to be a woman of financial means. She helped Paul and many others, Paul tells. Perhaps that's why she's able to make the trip from Chantria a port city near Corinth, all the way over to Rome, which was an expensive and demanding task. Now the question is, if maybe you noticed this as Sarah read this, Phoebe is the only one commended. Other than that, Paul sends lots of greetings. But why does Paul need to say these things about Phoebe? Why is she the only one commended? Uh, Phoebe was, as many scholars that I have read understand it, the letter's courier. She is the one who brought Paul's letter to the Romans, to the Romans. Uh, she brought, I was trying to make a little joke there, I thought it was sort of confusing. Paul's letter to the Romans brought it to the Romans. <laughs> to be a courier was an important and trusted role in the delivery of letters in the ancient world. 
uh, in this interesting little book by New Testament scholar Beverly Roberts Gaventa, When in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel according to Paul. Gaventa was for multiple decades a professor at Princeton. She's now at Baylor. Um, she's been writing a Romans commentary evidently for almost 20 years. Uh, she's, this is her thing. But she says this about being a courier, uh, about this role that Phoebe is playing and why Paul is commending her. She says, the only reliable mail service that existed in the ancient world was used entirely for the official business of the government. Private letter writers who were generally more wealthy would use slaves. Others would do the best they could, generally seeking a friend who might be traveling to the destination of the letter. I personally think this point about Phoebe is just worth enjoying for a little while and teasing out. And I love how Gaventa frames it in this little book. She says this about Phoebe. Phoebe has come to Rome and has brought the letter with her. This letter, the one that stands first in the Pauline canon, the one over which an ocean of ink has been spilled, over which countless theological battles have been waged and are still being waged today, on the perilous rocks of which exegetical careers have been made and lost, this letter was delivered by a woman. And if, if this is true, Phoebe delivered the letter then in two senses. She quite literally brought the actual letter to the Roman churches. She was, that's the case, but she also needed to deliver the letter in the manner that it was meant to be heard, the manner that it was meant to be read. From what we know about courier practices in the ancient world, couriers were often talked through the substance of the letters they carried. All the difficult bits, all the vital bits, all the confusing bits, which Romans has... Romans has its fair share of. Couriers would be expected to know the substance of their letters, perhaps even to have memorized it. Here's a quote from another ancient letter writer, Cicero, that sheds light on this sort of practice. He writes apologetically to a friend, and he's saying, he's sorry, he says, I have been rather slow in making a reply to your letter because I can't find a trustworthy courier. There are so few who can carry a letter of any substance without lightening the weight by perusal. Cicero just doesn't want someone who can hand the letter off. He wants someone who can deliver the substance of the letter to know the manner in which it should be read, the way it's supposed to be read. He wants it performed. This requires someone who can carry the substance of the letter. This must have been the sort of person that Phoebe was to Paul for doing this necessary job of being a courier and for this important work for this letter worth over two grand. Paul chose Phoebe. Phoebe was the face and the first voice to Paul's letter to the Romans. And if the relationship between her and Paul was like anything we know of other ancient couriers, he would have spent a lot of time with her, telling her where you just need to linger. 
where you should rush, where you should raise your voice, where you should look at particular groups with, you know, knowing eyes, who he's talking about, when to drop a pregnant pause, and when to stop for questions. And for this important task, for this rich document, Paul chose Phoebe. New Testament scholar um, and sort of jokester, uh, uh, Michael Bird, in his short book titled Bourgeois, I struggle with this word, Bourgeois, Bougie Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Haircuts, A Case for Gender Equality in Ministry. In this little book, he teases this out, and he asks, if the Romans had any questions about the letter Paul sent them, such as, what is the righteousness of God? Or who is the wretched man that Paul is referring to halfway through? And if you're curious why he singles those out, those are huge live debates in Pauline studies. But Bird goes on and says, then who do you think would have, that would have been the first person they would ask? That's right, it would have been Phoebe. Phoebe is the face and the first voice to Paul's letter to the Romans. She helps interpret it for them. Bird goes on, enjoying this, relishing this a bit, saying, This is Romans. Paul's attempt to prevent a potentially fractious cluster of house churches in Rome from dividing over debates about Jewish law. This is Paul's effort to return to Jerusalem with all the Gentile churches behind him. This is Paul's one chance to garner support from the Roman churches for a mission to Spain. This is Romans, his greatest letter essay, the most influential letter in the history of Western thought, and the singular greatest piece of Christian theology. Now, if Paul was opposed to women teaching men anytime and anywhere, why would he send a woman like Phoebe to deliver this vitally important letter and to be his personal representative in Rome? Why not Timothy or Titus? Or someone else. Why Phoebe? And if you remember at the end of how Sarah, when Sarah read Romans 16, Paul names all the people that are with him in Rome that are in some way involved in the composition. He talks about Lucius, Jason, Sospiter, Tertius, who's the one who actually writes the letter out, Gaius, Erastus, Quartus, as well as Timothy. Paul could have chosen any of those guys, asked them to deliver it. Um, but instead he chose Phoebe. And we can't definitively answer why Paul would have chosen Phoebe. But he must, at a baseline, must have trusted her and known her. Her name, which means tightness, indicates that she came from some manner of a pagan background, as no self-respecting Jew would ever name their daughter this. So she's some sort of convert into the church in Chantria where she served as a deacon and gained the trust of Paul, trust enough to deliver this letter. There's more I think we could even say about Phoebe. I think Phoebe is awesome, in case you haven't picked that up from me. But time doesn't allow us to continue to dwell on Phoebe. We need to keep going. We're only one name in at this point. The next name that comes uh, after Phoebe's glowing recommendation is Paul's first greeting of anyone in his letter. And his first greeting belongs to one half of New Testament super couple 
Priscilla and Aquila. It belongs to Priscilla or Prisca. Uh, Paul greets her along with her husband Aquila. These two show up elsewhere in Paul's letters as well as in the book of Acts. And again, they are a power couple. They're named seven times in the New Testament. Seven times they show up. And there is so much that we could say about them, that I could say about them. But the thing that I want to point out that has struck commentators and historians and is significant to this sort of graveyard approach to reading Paul, looking at names, is that five of the seven times this couple is named, Priscilla's name comes first, including here. Priscilla's name is mentioned before her husband, Aquilus. Again, they're always mentioned together, but it's interesting that it comes first. This is noteworthy in part because it seems to be almost unconscious. It just sort of comes out that way, which perhaps is an affirmation of her prominence. We see this the same pattern in Paul's letters as we do in the book of Acts. Again, as you might assume, the standard practice of the day was for men to be named first. And that even carries into relatively modern times in some ways, too. When Sarah and I were married 13 years ago, we received letters from parts of her extended family that I had never met before. I was a mystery to them, but they addressed it to Mr. and Mrs. Joshua Chestnut. I just thought that was so bizarre that Sarah became Mrs. Joshua Chestnut, and I didn't become... Anyway, I just... (laughs) That's for another time, I suppose. But Keener, Craig Keener calls this unexpected ordering particularly noteworthy. It's not just a simple mistake or a one-off. It's a pattern in biblical writing. And it clues us into part of the nature of this couple. In Romans, uh, the little verse you see there, Paul mentions how Priscilla and Aquila saved his life, how they risked their neck for his. We don't know what this means, but usually in these life in death situations, relationships are forged. He loves these these two, and they must love him. Whatever else we could say about them, it's important to note that Paul calls both of them his fellow workers, his co-workers, indicating that they, both of them, share in the same work of ministry, which he is involved. He says this here, as well as in 1 Corinthians 16 and Philemon, the other places where these two are named. And this might sound kind of an insignificant. They worked. They worked with him. Uh, but we see that this pattern of... We see that there's something significant about this language of worked. Uh, uh, worked together or worked hard in the Lord throughout Paul. We're going to jump away from our trek through the names in Romans. We're going to jump over briefly to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, where we encounter Euodia and Syntyche. So I'm going to read, uh, read it for you here. So Paul says in Philippians 4, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Earlier in Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul had told the whole church, the whole group that was receiving this letter, they needed to have the same mind. 
the mind that was in Christ Jesus. It kind of flows into that that beautiful hymn about Christ emptying himself, taking on the form of a slave and then being exalted. But Paul has told the whole church they need to be of one mind. There's some sort of threat within the community of disunity, and Paul has told them all to be of the same mind. Yet here, toward the end of the letter, Paul singles out two individuals, two women who, in some matter, aren't on the same page. There's something of a convention in sermons or Bible studies that flows out, I think, of mistranslations of this verse that really dwells on the fact that these two aren't getting along, that they're bickering women, they have some sort of beef between one another, and it's quite a big deal. This comes from how the verses have sometimes been translated, like in the New Living Translation, that tells them to settle their disagreement. Or, I'm sorry to say this, the message. I'm sorry, Eugene, Eugene Peterson's hate to disagree with Eugene in public. Um, but he says, he, he translates this as, be of one mind. He tells them to iron out their differences and not hold grudges which adds a significantly different feel than be of one mind, which has already been told to the entire church. The nature and the extent of their dispute is not actually clear. Paul doesn't spend any time on what that is. Again, it doesn't seem to be unique. Paul has told everyone else in the church they need to be the same way. So while we don't know why they aren't of the same mind... What is clear that these named women aren't just being reprimanded by Paul. Paul commends them. Paul speaks highly of them. He speaks about them as working along with him, laboring beside him and clement in the work of the gospel. It's the same terminology he used earlier in, in this book to speak of his own work and Timothy's work and Epaphroditus's work. Like the named people in Romans 16 most scholars think these two are named not primarily because their egregious, their disagreement is so egregious that they have this huge beef that needs Paul to come in and squash it and help them work through it. But in fact, they're named because they're influential. They're leaders in this church. They're known in this church. Again, writing letters was expensive. You don't waste time on sort of gossipy, petty women that are fighting in the church. You name leaders. And what he says about them is that they work hard. And these two are not the only women named or commended by Paul for working alongside him or working hard alongside him. Moving back to Romans 16, you can see it on your own time. Uh, um, but Paul name, says, Mary, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and his dear friend Persis are all have said to have worked hard in the Lord. This might sound somewhat bland and insignificant, but this is the same terminology that Paul uses to describe his own apostolic ministry in 1 Corinthians, multiple times in Galatians and 1 Thessalonians. These named women appear to be active in their church, active in ministry in the churches of Rome. And it's really telling that there's there's more women who are commended for working in the Lord than there are men in Romans 16. There are five women that are commended, and there are only three guys that are. 
Craig Keener wonders if Paul being aware of the prejudice against women's contributions in society works all the harder to make sure that the praiseworthy, sorry, that praiseworthy among them receive their due. And scholars across the spectrum, from an evangelical like Scott McKnight to an 18th century German higher critic like Adolf von Harnack, see this term of working hard in the Lord uh, as a special term that is used for Paul's associates, for those that are in ministry. Cynthia Long Westfall, in her awesome book, Paul and Gender, this was the most helpful book, it's on men and women. She says, Paul commends women for working hard, uh, and it's a word that it's most often used for his own apostolic work. And she makes this interesting connection uh, to a different letter, to a different context, but tells us something perhaps about how Paul thinks about those who work hard. She makes a connection with 1 Corinthians 16, 15 to 16. It says, now, brothers and sisters, you know that, member, that members of the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. I urge you to put yourself at the service, which literally means be subject or subordinate yourself to such people and to everyone who works hard and toils with them. So Westfall is trying to make a connection that in another place, those who work hard, those who do this sort of work that Paul describes women as doing time and time again, are those that we need to, those who aren't doing that work need to subject themselves to, to be subordinate to, to listen to, to let them lead. Making a hard transition uh, away from that, back to our graveyard imagery. If you think about what could be one of the most disrespectful things you could do in a graveyard, it would be to vandalize a tombstone. To vandalize a tombstone. To disrespect someone who's already passed on. And I think for two named women in Paul's letters, this has been the case. Uh, one, somewhat more infamously, Junia in Romans 16. And the other is the less well-known Nympha in Colossians 4. And to be clear by vandalize, what I mean is the name that's on their sort of textual tombstone, Paul names them, their names have been changed from a woman's name to a man's name. The last few years, there's a burgeoning of publications uh, and a growing awareness about how this happened to Junia. There's a lot of sources. I won't go into all the details, but I'll point you to two books. The first is called The Blue Parakeet by Scott McKnight. He has a number of chapters that do this. One is called Junia is Not Alone, and the other is Eldon Epp, his book, Junia. So, and here she is, Junia, and we read in Romans 16, 7, Paul writes, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me, they were prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. These two were clearly older believers. They're fellow converts out of Judaism. They're kinsmen, to Paul, as some translations put it. And they've been imprisoned for the gospel. They've suffered for their faith. And again, there's a long, more detailed story that time doesn't totally permit, but 
again, McKnight and Epp are helpful on this. But I want to highlight a few matters. The first is that the language here, and I'm following Craig Keener in particular, places Andronicus and Junia among the apostles. They are well known among the apostles. They belong to the group of the apostles. It is not that the group of apostles knows well uh, Junia and Andronicus who are over here. They belong. That is the way the grammar grammar uh, works. Yet somewhere along the line in copying this text, as it was through um, manuscripts, someone became uncomfortable with the fact of a Junia, this Junia being an apostle. And so changed, changed the name, masculinized it from Junia to Junius. This is an amazing thing because Junia is an incredibly well-known name in, in the first few centuries. There's, there's over 500 attestations of a junia like sorry i say when i say a junia it makes it sound like that's the word a junia but there is over there are over 500 attestations of a junia uh so it is a common name there is not a single one for junius there is no junius that exists in the ancient world that we know of other than perhaps if this was a junius uh but that's, it would be sort of like me turning Kimberly into Kimbert. You just, it doesn't sound right. There's no, there's no Kimberts, uh, around. It doesn't work. And even apart from the fact that it is an unknown name to antiquity, the second century, uh, apologist is one example of a number of church fathers who were in no way modern feminists or proto-feminists. Uh, they wrote about Junia. Uh, and Justin Martyr talks about how great the wisdom of this woman must have been that she was even deemed worthy of the title apostle. Yet somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, it got Kimbertoned. Uh, it got changed from Junia to Junius. And Westfall, Cindy Westfall, says it's, it's recognized virtually un, uh, unanimously through church history until the Middle Ages. And she goes also into some detail about this. And this shows up in even more recent translations. The 1946 translation of the RSV speaks about these two as men of note among the apostles. And just to be abundantly clear, no one thinks these two, Adronius and, uh, Adronicus, Adronicus and Junia, were among the original 12. That's not the idea. We see other places in the New Testament uh, where Paul and Barnabas are called apostles in Acts. Apollos is called an apostle in Corinthians. James in Galatians. Epaphroditus in Philippians. Paul in Silvanus in 1 Thessalonians. Jesus himself is called that in Hebrews chapter 3. And the idea here, the main idea is that this, these were people that were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. And they were commissioned by him to do things. And um, one uh, interesting scholar, this guy Richard Balcom, actually thinks Junia is Joanna, who uh, shows up in Luke's account in Luke's gospel. I don't know if that's actually the case. He is a very um, smart person, so maybe that's the case. But anyway, her tombstone, her gravestone, has been vandalized. And she's not the only one. Nympha 
who shows up in Colossians 4.15. Give my greetings, uh, the, the verse says this, give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce, who is a respected evangelical commentator, is one of many who point out that in the tradition, her name was changed to Nymphon, and it was then turned into the church that met in his house, or their house. Uh, It's less well known, but um, it's a similar case of a gravestone being vandalized under the assumption that a church wouldn't meet in a woman's home because women aren't heads of home. Uh, That's for kind of another time, but she suffers a similar fate to Junia. Now, there's certainly more that could be said, and perhaps I should have said. I'm hoping to do a few more of these on Paul and women. Um, It's worth noting that what we have as 1 Corinthians appears to be Paul's response from Chloe's people, Chloe's report from what's going on in Corinth. Paul takes Chloe seriously enough and trusts her enough to respond with this massive letter uh, so Paul trusts Chloe um, in her opinion. There's more to say about Apphia. There would be uh, more to say about Eunice. But we only have so much time together tonight. But what has animated me tonight is is to try to look at some of the names of women in Paul's communities to sort of get us on the ground, so to say, to see what women were up to and to see how Paul spoke about them. And we see that Paul speaks about them often as his co-workers. He speaks about them as people of influence and worthy of respect in his churches. And again, as I said in the beginning, when we see Paul's actual relationships with people, with his trusted deacon, um, with an apostle, uh, with others, when we see these relationships, the image of Paul as a woman hater, as a misogynist, or the understanding of Pauline churches having no place for women doing anything besides potlucks and meal trains, which are highly important things. But I think that that is an unfair shake on what Paul Paul's churches actually look like. And I want to close with two things. One is a quote that brings us back to this gravestone image. Uh, and it comes from Cindy Cynthia Long Westfall, and again, in her wonderful book, Paul and Gender, Reclaiming the Apostles' Vision for Men and Women. And it highlights how countercultural and how different Paul was to his own day. She writes this. In the Greco-Roman culture, though there were exceptions, it was not considered proper to give women public recognition. Therefore, a woman could accomplish feats and functions in a variety of roles for which a man would be commended. But on her gravestone she would be commended for conforming to the stereotypical roles of wife and mother and perhaps for spinning wool. Paul is countercultural because he commends women in the same way for doing the same things that he commends men for. I love that. This textual graveyard of Paul's letters. They're remembered for working hard. They're remembered for being deacons. They're remembered for their faith. And I want to end with that quote, but also with a picture. So Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. And some nine centuries later, this ornate basilica 
was constructed there. It's the Basilica of St. Praxedes. This is in Rome. When COVID's done, we should all go check it out. Um, and this is a, a, a kind of, I could have gotten you a bigger picture. We're going to move in closer. Don't worry. Uh, this is above the altar. This is the center of the church. This is a church. Again, it's the Basilica of St. Praxedes. And if you move in closer, on the left, below the risen Christ, the ascended and ruling Christ, just so you know, the guy all the way on the left with the square around his head, he was the current pope at the time this basilica was constructed. That's why he has a square, not a halo. And he was Pope Pascal, or, or Pascal. Uh, and he is presenting to Christ the church. But in between him uh, is St. Praxedes, an early Christian that we know very, very little about other than this church was made in her honor. There's some conflicting accounts, but she appears to be someone who buried the bodies of martyrs, who cared for the poor, and was a woman of faith. And next to her, what I feel like looks pretty chummy and pretty friendly, (laughs) is the Apostle Paul, who is commending her for the work she has done. Uh, And he's commending her to the risen and ruling Lord it's another little close-up right there. It's a little harder to see that. If you struggle with Paul, I get it. I totally get it. I understand it. I haven't even touched on some of the difficult things tonight. But perhaps this image of Paul is another way to think about him. And before we move into question time, I just wanted to uh, uh, reward those. Well, maybe this is a reward. Maybe it's not a reward. Uh, those who have stuck with this all the way through on Facebook in particular. If anything that I've said is new or interesting and you're watching this after the live feed, I'm putting my email address on the internet um, and I'd be more than happy to follow up uh, or send some resources. Uh, this particular branch of Labrie has some wonderful teaching resources uh, for the last 30 years on Paul and women and Jesus and women women in the Bible, um, and there's other things as well. Uh, if you think everything I said was bunk, maybe don't email me. Um, I can give you Dave Friedrich's email address. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've been going for a while, and so I'm going to move it back to this image of Paul and Pope Pascal and uh, St. Praxedes. And I'm happy to take... Any questions? I'm not sure. I'll give satisfactory answers, but we're gonna we're gonna do this for a little while. Marty, I have a question. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the second word, um, important word used to describe Phoebe was Christodus. Yeah. Um, a benefactor. Yeah. Um, I've I've read that it also has a meaning of a, of a leader or a governor that it's used in Romans, the Paul is mentioned in a, in yeah. the lists of gifts yeah. uh, or callings in Romans and also in 1 Corinthians. And yeah. that, and that um, those with the gift of leadership should govern diligently, that it's the same. It's the same thing. thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so yeah, I just yeah, wondered, yeah. yeah, I wondered if you'd come across that I, reference. So that both I had it, no. Also the prostatus meaning a, yeah. a, a leader or governor. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would make sense in some ways because... Um, from what I understood, patrons often uh, moved into some sort. It's the way you would be elected or whatnot. Would be you would 
sort of give gifts to common people, win their graces, and then become... So, I mean, it would make... There's some sort of parallels there, but... I, I didn't read that. Gaventa was the one who I... She talked about that for a bit, as did McKnight, and even... Yeah, even Keener. I, don't, I didn't get... None of them... They all connected it to that... More to that role, um, sort of in antiquity. Because I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's neither am I. A different, it's evidently the same, the same um, basic word, but in different, a different form, verb form versus noun form or something. Okay. Stan is being a leader. Yeah. Or um, and then in the form of governing, governing diligently. Yeah. In your cool. Yeah. yeah. Great. And it fits with what everything you said. Yeah. Did you have something to take? Or, yeah. yeah. I have two two short related ones. Going back to the beginning of your yeah. I've always, I think, assumed that Paul wrote Romans having never been to Rome. Yes. Is that right? So I, that's, the, that's the general assumption because of some of the stuff he says yeah. about, yeah, then going now, on to Spain. Given that that's the case, this yeah. long list at the end, yeah. all these folks he would have had to have met other places in the empire. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think so. It's an amazing picture of the dispersed. Yeah. I mean, he's known that they've all migrated to Rome somehow. Yeah. And he knows that they're there. Yeah. And it, it, it's an amazing picture of communication. Yeah. And, and movement. And yeah. Movement. Yeah. And the centrality of Rome, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. But, but it's just a, I never thought of it at all before, but it's, a, it's sort of exciting. Yeah. Ocean of what? Yeah, I'm already wanting to get to Rome. All his buddies with there. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's some pretty <laughs> sweet sounding people yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. They're under a rough, by rough means, but yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I don't go with McKnight on all of his sort of decisions or whatever, but in that book, reading Romans backwards, um, that I'll try to eventually. It'll take me a little while. What I really appreciated about his book was that that chapter came to life because he starts there and he's he's looking at he's looking at the names and he's looking at the little things that are said and showing just what a diverse community this was and how that diversity is the same diversity that was just going on in the city of Rome and then he then wants to sort of step back into sort of this idea of the weak and the strong and sort of reframe Romans is not sometimes we start with one to eight and like I said you just get so exhausted you sort of the practical stuff at the end is sort of an add-on and he's trying to make the point all of that theology is to serve this community that's potentially fracturing that has the weak and the strong and it has it has Greek it has Jews and he's Stott does a similar thing with situating Romans after the Jews had been exiled from Rome and then came back. And so and Stott uh, does some stuff thinking that perhaps it had been more of a primarily Jewish community, that Jews were exiled from Rome, and then they come back, when they finally come back after, uh, I think, Claudia, uh, I won't say, after some emperor passes away. And now it's primarily Greek-speaking. It's now, it's now, it's no longer primarily Jews. Um and that, it's like, just heads butting constantly. Um, hey, he just brought, to me, he brought that same sort of energy in Romans 16 about Paul must have known these people from all over the place. He brought that to life in the rest of, in the rest of the book. I, I enjoyed it. Again, I didn't, I don't buy into every, um, every sort of exegetical decision that he makes, but it was, it made the book quite lively and it made, these house churches in Rome to me be really exciting 
communities. So, uh, yeah. Anyone else have any any questions or anything or any thoughts or pushback? Um, if not, we could call it a day. Yeah. From Mike in California. Can you tell us when Paul made his earliest comment about women's work in the church? I don't think it was in Romans. Yeah, so that, I mean, that, in regards to earliest, I, I don't think anyone's going to tell you um, definitively. Some people insist that First and Second Thessalonians uh, are, are the first in Paul. Um, so, yeah, and... Um, so that's why I wanted to start with Romans, in, in part because it's canonically uh, the first letter in the New Testament. Um, so when, as we read the scriptures as they've come to us, it's the first name woman uh, that Paul says. But different scholars have different different views on dating, and in regards to earliest, I I I, I don't know, I don't necessarily have a dog in that fight. I. I just don't totally know. Is that if that's not sufficient, you can, I guess, write more. <laughs> so yeah, Ben. Anyway, of knowing, I mean, you, you hear that uh, a significant percentage of early converts to Christianity were women. Yeah. And there's maybe a, a high percentage of slaves as well, more so than the than sort of. Um, more, uh, more, more so than maybe than, than there were men even in the beginning. I don't, I don't even know if that's true or not. But but is there any way of knowing, sort of in a letter like Romans, how, what, how many believers were women? You yeah. Know, what, what was the sort of demographic of, of yeah. the church at that yeah, point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of. Um, I'm just wondering whether that has something to do with the number of women that, that are in these roles. Yeah. You know, they're, they're the ones yeah. that, are, that are there and showing up and and uh, committed to working hard. And I don't yeah. know. I just don't know if there's any way of knowing or if people have tried to estimate in any way. I don't, yeah, I don't know uh, the numbers um, or percentages. There's a historian who I think is helpful I'm not exactly sure he's a Christian. He's friendly to Christians. Um, this guy named Kyle Harper, and he writes primarily about Roman. He writes written about Roman slavery, um, and then sexuality in the Roman world. I've said this before at the lunch table, so apologies to those. I feel like I said it recently, um, but yet yeah, he makes the case that it was Paul's sexual ethic that brought women and slaves uh, into the church. Uh, he doesn't put it this way, but I would say that like Harvey Weinstein is the quintessential, he is the ideal Roman man. He can have sex with whoever he wants, he's powerful, and he can get away with it. And legally, men were allowed to, with the exception of freed men's wives. They were the only things off limits. So children, boys, slaves, male and female slaves, uh, they were all up for grabs and had no legal recourse mm-hmm. to do anything uh, against it. And um, uh, Harper's book is called From, uh, From Shame to Sin. And he says the ethic around men's, the sexual ethic in Rome was constituted on shame 
and it was just something you could bring upon yourself. But there were only certain way, only certain things you could do to bring shame on yourself, and it applied differently to different people. And he says Paul comes in and presents something pretty unprecedented. I mean, it's in Jewish writings, but there isn't the same sort of missionary impulse uh, in Jews as there are, there are in Christians. And Paul says. Everyone has the same sexual ethic. Men, women, everyone has the same. And consent is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. Like he says in 1 Corinthians, uh, the husband's body belongs to the wife, and the wife's belongs to the husband. It's interdependent. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing like that in the ancients. He uses the term sexual economies. Um, and so he said, because of that, the church churches became the only places that women and slaves' bodies were safe. They were respected. Nowhere else they were they were respected in the same way. And then he goes on to talk about these early accounts of of, of virginity, of like early Christian ascetics and, and especially female versions. And we hear that sort of through the lens of purity culture or primarily thinking this is about a discomfort with the body mm-hmm. and a denial of the body and an elevation of the spirit. And he says maybe while some of that is at work, uh, primarily what's at work, he kind of says they're proto-feminists because the church gave women a place where they could say, this is my body, I can do what I want with it, and you can't touch it. It's not for you to touch. Uh, and so they said, I'm, I'm giving my body to the Lord and to nobody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just said there's nothing like that uh, in the ancient world. So I think... I've been compelled by some of Harper's writings, and actually, like, it makes it that helped me like like Paul a little. I mean, I've liked Paul for a while. Um, I, I really like Paul, but um, it just put his writing in a different a different light and showed why his writings. You know, I'm trying to argue tonight that Paul was a friend of particular women, but I think through some of that stuff that Harper does, that subsequent work shows why Paul was a friend to women sort of writ large uh, as, as a category. And that guy, Tom Holland, who wrote the D- D- Dominion book, I haven't read Dominion, but he, I read a short um, interview that he did for an Australian newspaper, and he said the Me Too movement is Pauline. Uh, he said, there's obviously it's taken a while, uh, and much, and, and Tom Holland isn't a Christian, He's not naive. Um, and, I mean, he said it's obviously Paul's sexual ethics have lost their um, sort of religious roots and took different turns in the Enlightenment. But if you trace it far enough back, it's like Paul. Uh, it's Paul who his ideas gave us the Me Too movement. And uh, it's just interesting to hear someone who doesn't really have there's no incentive for Tom Holland to speak fondly of Christians. Uh, um, so, or of Paul. So anyway. Yeah, anyone else? Or, um, yeah, Marty? I think in that book by um, Fiorenza Schuster, Schuster Fiorenza, yeah, you yeah. her name? Um, I think you just memory, said it. In yeah, memory yeah. of yeah. her. Uh-huh. I think she, that's where I came across a reference to the fact that very early on in church history, there was there was this 
no references to free Roman males being converted, but many, huh. many to women and slaves. Yeah. Um, and because for the very, all the sort of things you've just said, but even more broadly than that, the free Roman males had unbelievable legal power mm. over women and slaves, yeah. and women yeah. and slaves had no legal power. Yeah. And, and the call to serve Christ, to become a disciple of Jesus, meant actually, I mean, if when a free Roman male said, okay, I'm going to follow Christ, I'm going to be a disciple, he had to give up huge yes. parts of, his, yeah. right, of yeah. his legal rights under Roman law to be a disciple of Jesus, and say, yeah. I, I forego this, I forego this. I mean, free Roman males had the, had the power of life and death over members yeah. of their family, and there were, yeah. were some times in Roman history where they actually killed their wives legally, have their wives killed legally. They could make and break their children's marriages, make them marry whoever they wanted, yeah. make them get divorced and marry someone else. Yeah. So that they had to give up a lot to follow yeah. Jesus. And women and slaves gained huge gained respect. Huge really, yeah. 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 Cool. Well, I think it's a really helpful angle. I like the graveyard idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. But but it's it's an interesting way to come into it. I'm just more and more convinced Paul was a human, and he had a lot of (laughs) he had a lot of disappointments, and he was often misunderstood, Um, and I think he was lonely. I mean, he talks about being betrayed. By Alexander and, and Demos, um, yeah, and he's just a real a real person, and just to to me beginning to notice all all the names and what he says about men and about women just made me think like, yeah, this guy he's he's not a theo- he's not a theologian writing academic treatises. He's a pastor who can't who loves his people. And wants to form a people to, pre, you know, to present to Christ. And um, he's writing these letters because he can't be there in person. Um, and so, yeah, they're so occasional. But I find him more and more like, creative as well, and just like an interesting guy. And yeah, yeah, Marty. Just along those lines, I love the references. The way he refers to himself in Thessalonians, I was like a nursemaid among you. He uses feminine images of himself in terms of his care for you. I stayed up late yeah. like a nursemaid among yeah. you. His love for he does it in Galatians and even the, the verses in Corinthians that like, uh, you, you weren't ready for meat and I gave you milk. I forget yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like it's also a nursing image there yes. too. And yeah. actually the next talk I want to give is, on some of those awesome. images and sort of how we think about masculinity and femininity and what how what Paul would yeah mm-hmm. so I I sort I think I want to call it like our mother well there's a book called Our Mother Saint Paul so I think I might call it Saint Paul Our Mother or something like that um, but um, so you put the name Friedrich in there probably I'll probably put <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Oh, I know it is. Uh, I did as a joke. As a joke, I said it to Dave uh, as Paul uh, Friedrich, a woman. So, for those students that are here, well, I don't know. Yeah. 
it, yeah. was, it was sent out to the world, to put it that way. Yeah, yeah, there we go. It was sent out to the world a little snuck by, uh, yeah, snuck by it. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if this, I think there's a lot of women who feel like they couldn't be friends with Paul. Yeah. And I just think this lecture could help them change their mind. I, yeah. I hope so. I mean, I, that's, I, it's, I hope, I hope, I hope it can. And, um, yeah, I think, I think Paul has been, Paul says, Paul maybe also doesn't totally always help himself. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, in regards to being misunderstood, um, He's, and not just on this issue, on any number of things. Paul is a, he, he really respects you as a reader because he brings some pretty high level stuff. And that's not even someone who, you don't have to be like academically inclined to find how uh, difficult Paul can be. But there's other times too where he's just like, um, he's just so on point and clear. But anyway, I do, I do hope those who have not found Paul a friend um, and thought of him as, um, yeah, this misogynist or this this guy who insisted that women stay in their homes and have nothing to contribute, um, I I think Paul would be dis would be bummed that that's his his legacy, and I think he would find a number of churches who spend a lot of time in his letters to be like inadequately. Pauline, in that sense. I think he would be disappointed in that. Sarah? This is sort of uh, off the focus, but I was just really struck by the line at the end of Romans 16 about Christ. You, you, like, Christ will presently crush under your feet. Yeah. I was just curious as you studied Romans 16 um, yeah do you want to say more about that or like it just kind of leaps out as this um, word of encouragement or like mm-hmm. a vision of, of inspiration you know to inspire the yeah. church or, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I was just wondering about your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, I think it's a play, or it's, it's taken the language um, about, you know, the snake mm-hmm. in Genesis 3, the curse, uh, biting the heel, but uh, I, I kind of want to read it so that I I don't miss say it, because I, it's not coming to me, um, but... Uh, Yeah, this is to the curse the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done all this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you will go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And that idea of like biting the heel um, as an image, I mean... Um, yeah, the, the image, like the reality of evil, s- sin, and evil in the serpent entering into the the garden, and then tempting Eve, and then you know the entry of sin. And sin is <clears throat> described in four um, 
you know, almost like this roaring lion, like, be on your guard, because it's this roaring lion that is, is out to get you. Its desire is to get you. And throughout the pages of scripture, and throughout the pages of human history, and our lives, like, we experience uh, evil that is biting at our heel, that is poisoning us, that is pulling us down. But Paul has walked through a lot of things in this letter at this point, and at the end is just reminding them that ultimately, um, because of what Christ has done, the God of peace is going to crush, crush uh, Satan under your feet. And so sometimes uh, people call this part in Genesis 3 the proto-evangelion, like the pre-gospel, um, but like it's hinting towards kind of what is to come. But uh, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, see, Paul's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? hearing, hearing that line in the context of greet, 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 greet one another with a holy kiss, greet, greet, you know, like... You, you get the sense of, you know, that moment of gathering where it's like, turn and greet, turn and greet the people around you, church. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then it's like, and it's so that you would remember this, like, as you do this, and yeah. as my presence is made flesh, Christ's presence is made flesh in yeah. his body, like, Satan is being crushed, mm-hmm. and, um, like that somehow is a, a tangible outworking of this kind of yeah, yeah, fellowship yeah. that mm-hmm. is being Yes, yes. Yeah, because right before it, he says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to keep an eye on those who call this, cause dissensions and offenses in opposition to the teaching that you have learned. Avoid them. For such people do not serve our Lord Christ with their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience is known to all, uh, known, known to all, so that I rejoice over you, I want you to be wise in what is good and guileless in what is evil. And then he said, the God of peace will shortly crush Satan under your feet. Mm-hmm. And it, so much of like what's before Romans 16 and, and Romans 12 to 15, there is this refrain, um, there is this some sort of drama that revolves around dietary laws about the strong and the weak. And this is a community that's fracturing over over this. There's two groups. And Paul, time and time again, says, welcome one another, welcome one another. And, you know, he they are brothers and sisters. That That is what they said. And, yeah, through their welcoming one another, becoming the body of Christ, becoming this family, is this, this community that is going to undo, that through Christ uh, is his means of, of crushing the head of the serpent. It's... Yeah, that's awesome. It's so cool. Paul is... Yep, he's, he's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Paul is Paul is more than alright with me. But it took me a while to get there. So if you're not there, I get that. Like, Paul is... Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Marty. Just, Paul, yeah. Well, thank you so much. This yeah. is really good work. And I, I think... What, one of the things that came out of in your talk is that helps us appreciate Paul is knowing something about the, the Greco-Roman background that he was writing into, and yeah. that just it, ju- it changes it changes everything as you understand yeah. about the yeah. you know what 
what was assumed then? What yeah. was the norm? I mean, just the way you began it. Yeah. That women weren't weren't given their own names. They were just yeah. they were um, they were named by the by the male authority. Or yeah. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, it breaks my. I mean, it's just so it's just so lame too that um, what Cynthia Long Westfall says about they could do all sorts of stuff potentially, but their tombstone says they were good wives. Uh, and they spun wool. And it's like, women can do more than spun wool. <laughs> let's be honest. So let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. Alright, well, I, is there a Facebook thing or are we good? We're good? Alright, alright, well, thank you all so much.